The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I want to introduce you this morning, as we get started, to a missionary named Dr. Paul Brand. Brand was born to missionary parents in India in 1914, and after spending some time in England going to medical school, returned to India, committing the majority of his life to caring for those suffering from leprosy. Now, if you're not familiar with leprosy, it's a condition that primarily destroys the nerve endings in your body, causing you to lose the ability to feel. This is extremely dangerous because those who suffer from this condition can't feel pain. And without pain, they will become unaware that if they get even the smallest incision, they might not know it and they might not get it treated and therefore it can lead to infections and much, much worse. So Dr. Brand spent his life in India caring for those suffering from this condition. And near the end of his life, he wrote an autobiography that he named Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. And in the book, this is what he writes. He says, I thank God for pain. I cannot think of a greater gift I could give to my leprosy patients. Most people view pain as an enemy. And yet without it, heart attacks, strokes, ruptured appendixes, and stomach ulcers would all occur without any warning. Who would ever visit a doctor apart from pain's warnings? Now, I don't think I need to convince any of us in the room this morning that life is, in fact, painful. According to the scriptures, we live in the middle or between two perfections. The perfection of Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve dwelling in the presence of God in the garden, and the perfection of Revelation 21, where Christ returns to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And yet we live in this Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 painful reality of life. And so we hurt. We experience physical pain, sickness, infection, disease. We experience emotional pain. Sorrow, grief, and depression. We experience relational pain of betrayal and loss and heartache. We experience spiritual pain, sins, experiences of what feel like the absence of God, what the church fathers call the dark nights of the soul. So today, as we continue journeying line by line through the Lord's Prayer, we come to this little, powerful, weighty line for our pain. Your kingdom What a powerful line. Your kingdom come. And what I want to help us understand over the next few minutes is that this line from Jesus gives us an opportunity to turn our pain that we all have and will continue to experience because that's the reality of life into a gift from God through prayer. That learning to pray with the disciples, your kingdom come, is a means by which our pain can transform us and deepen our communion with God. But to understand that, 
You have to understand what Jesus is inviting us to pray when he says, pray your kingdom come. And to understand that, you have to understand what exactly the kingdom of God is. So let's take a minute just to talk about the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom is not a word we use a lot as Americans, right? We don't live in a kingdom. We know a little bit about like Harry and Meghan are fighting with the, the monarchs, right? Like that's kind of the existence of what we know. But the kingdom of God is an idea all over the place. It's a mega theme in the scriptures. The kingdom of God is Jesus's favorite way, I would argue, to describe his mission on earth. In Mark chapter one, Mark says that Jesus's gospel message that he came preaching and proclaiming was, quote, the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 9, 35, Matthew's summation of Jesus's ministry, it says that he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 6, 33, just a few verses after the Lord's prayer, Jesus says to his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God. But even though Jesus references the kingdom often and even tells us what it's like quite often, he says it's like a mustard seed, or the kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure or a fishing net. He never stops to tell us exactly what the kingdom of God is. And so you have to dig a little bit deeper. And when you dig a little bit deeper, what you see is two specific realities that the kingdom of God entails, two specific things that come along with the kingdom of God. The first is the rule and reign of God. So the kingdom of God involves the rule and reign of God. It is the spreading out and inbreaking of God's dominion, power, and authority. It's where God's visible reign is exercised in the world. To use the language of last week, it is where the hallowing of God's name actually makes its way into the lived reality of our souls and of our lives. To put it simply, the kingdom of God is where God is in charge. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God is in charge. To which you might think, but, but wait a minute, Tim. Like, I thought God was always in charge. Like, I thought God was sovereign. I thought God was always ruling and reigning and in control of everything. And while that's true, the scriptures also give us constant examples where we as humans want things that are against God, that are opposite of God, that go against God's design and way. And in the scriptures, God often steps back and allows humans to go outside of his rule and reign to their own destruction and demise. So while God is sovereign and king overall, there are places in our lives and in the world around us where that sovereignty or that kingship is not being utilized or brought into fruition. And so the kingdom of God, where he rules and reigns, is where God's reign and rule is being bought, brought back over a place or an individual, often resulting, as you'll see in the scriptures, in a upside-down turning of their lives. So a really good example of this is Zacchaeus, right? Everyone's famous story, right? Like a wee little man was he? You know the song, right? What happens in Zacchaeus' life, right? He spends years and years and years as a tax collector. He's an enemy of the people of God. He takes advantage of the poor. He builds crazy amounts of wealth by cheating and taking advantage of others. Jesus shows up in his life. He climbs up in a sycamore tree. Is like, I'm going to your house, Zacchaeus. You know the story. And in the course of one dinner, this man's life is so changed by the kingdom of God breaking in that the text says he gives back four times what he had stolen from people. That's the breaking in of the rule and reign of God. It's an upside down kingdom, right? The scriptures say that in the kingdom of God, the first are actually last and the last are actually first. 
That it's the blind who are the ones who see. It's the foolish who shame the wise. It's the poor who are actually rich. It's those who mourn who are blessed. So first, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. But the second thing that accompanies the kingdom of God is the renewal of all things. The renewal of all things. Now, if you're not familiar with that term renewal, that's the Bible's word of saying it gets better. (laughs) What is bad gets better. So things in the kingdom of God are not just brought under God's authority. They're also brought back into God's design for flourishing. So let me give you a few examples of this. Luke chapter 11, Jesus casts out a demon. And the religious leaders are like, you cast out a demon because of the power of Satan. And he's like, no, time out, not true. This is what he says, verse 20. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says something that accompanies the kingdom of God is the outpouring of God's power such that evil is displaced. When Jesus sends out the 12 apostles for a season of ministry in Matthew chapter 10, this is what he says, proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. So therefore, here's what you'll do. You'll heal the sick, you'll raise the dead, you'll cleanse lepers, you'll cast out demons accompanying the kingdom of God is the renewal of all things. So when God's kingdom breaks into the world, that means what is broken gets restored, what is evil gets defeated, what is wrong gets made right, what is decaying gets made new, and what was contrary to God's design is now brought back into wholeness. There's a renewal of everything that has been messed up by the reverberating effects of sin in the world made right in the kingdom of God. Which is beautiful, wonderful, and a promise that's true. So, the kingdom of God involves those two things. The rule and reign of God breaking out over the earth, and the renewal of all things from brokenness to wholeness and flourishing. But then notice, just like last week in verse 10, that modifier phrase, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's a powerful filler. That's a powerful modifier. Your kingdom come, Lord. Jesus says, pray like this. Your kingdom come. Your rule and reign be exercised. Your renewal and healing break in on the earth like it is in heaven. Think about heaven, right? In heaven, God rules and reigns what? Perfectly. We saw that last week. The angels surrounding the throne singing, holy, holy, holy. In heaven, where there's no more brokenness, no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. The scriptures say the last enemy to be defeated is what? Death. That. That renewal. That reign. Lord, we want to see that here and now. Because notice the the text, right? Notice the, the line of the prayer. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray, Lord, help me to be patient until your kingdom comes. Lord, help me to wait until your kingdom comes. Lord, help me to sit still until your kingdom comes. Lord, help me to long for your kingdom to come. No, what does he teach us to pray? Lord, your kingdom come. Meaning that we would look out into the reality of our souls and our lives and beg the Lord, Lord, would you make true what is true in heaven and into eternity true now in the physical reality of the world? which is the invitation of this line. Lord, would you make it true that you would reign and rule like you do right now in heaven? 
Lord, would you make it true that you would renew my life and renew my relationships and renew the world around me like it is going to be in heaven for all eternity? Would we actually, Lord, see the things around us and in our lives working and functioning like you've designed them to work and function? That's a powerful prayer, is it not? That's a prayer worth praying. Now, here's what this has to do with our pain. All of our pain in life points us to where God's kingdom has not yet come. Just think about that for a minute. All of our pain in life points us to where God's kingdom has not yet come. What happens is when we start to make this a part of our prayer life, when we start to ask the Lord, Lord, your kingdom come, something starts happening. We start seeing the pain and grief of our lives and of the world and of those around us through the lens of the reality that God's kingdom is already, but not yet. We start seeing these gaps of pain as places where God's kingdom has not brought renewal yet in full. Just think about it for a minute. Think about the differences between God's kingdom and the world and life you inhabit. Right? God, I'll just give you some examples. God's kingdom is one of peace and unity, right? Where all things live together in unity, but the world and our lives are one of strife and conflict. Amen? God's kingdom is one of rest for our souls. You know, our world and our lives are full of anxiety and worry. God's kingdom is one of worship of him, laying down our hearts and lives to adore him, and yet the world and our lives are full of the worship of self. God's kingdom is one of flourishing, right? Shalom. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Yet the world and our lives are full of suffering. God's kingdom is full of healing, right? Sight is restored to the blind. Those who are suffering are healed, and yet the world and our lives are full of sickness and pain. God's kingdom is one of generosity, we care for one another, abundance, and yet the world and our lives are full of greed and scarcity. God's kingdom is full of love of one another, and yet our world and our lives are one where we use one another. So what happens is every time we stop to pray, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're admitting that we're not seeing that happen around us in our lives and in the world, and it's in fact painful. There's a gap between what we experience and what God offers in his kingdom. And so the question becomes, what do you do with that pain? Like, what do you do when the grief arises where you go, okay, God's kingdom promises this, and my life and my heart reflect this. What do you do with the pain caused by that gap? Well, the invitation is to let that pain become a gift. How? Through the biblical invitation of lament. The biblical prayers of lament. To lament is very simple. It means to bring our pain and grief to God in sorrowful yet hope-filled prayer. That's what it means to lament. To lament is to bring that gap of our pain and grief to God in sorrowful yet hope-filled prayer. Jesus teaching us to pray, your kingdom come, is an invitation to lament all of the ways God's kingdom is in fact not yet coming, to see what's broken in the world, to see where his kingdom is not in full in our life and in the world around us, to stare it down, not to run from it, as confident, hope-filled Christians, and then to pour out our pain in cries to God. This is what one pastor, Mark Vrogop, says. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. 
Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament is the language of the scriptures for where our world and our lives are missing the renewal of the kingdom of God. And the beautiful thing about the Lord's prayer and the scriptures is that it gives us language to pray for our prayers of lament. The Bible is much more full of lament than our lives tend to be. So the Psalms, right, our ancient prayer book, these 150 chapters in the middle of our scriptures, lament time and time again. In fact, more than one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. More than one-third of the ancient songbook of God's people, the Israelites, are lamenting Psalms. And they lament many of the same things we lament today. There's laments for illness and suffering and death and rejection, and betrayal, and protest, and repentance, and injustice, and fear. We have a whole book in the Bible, literally called Lamentations, the book of lament. Ecclesiastes, after Easter, we're going to dive and walk through the book of Ecclesiastes together. It's one of my favorite books in the scriptures. I'm really excited. And that book is so fun because it starts the very first line of Ecclesiastes. The author says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And then he ends the book by saying, hey, if God doesn't exist, then eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're all going to die and it doesn't matter. That's a book of lament. Lamenting the brokenness of the world before God. The narratives of the Bible, the stories and personal prayers that we have give us language for lament for all the different sufferings of our lives. Hannah in 1 Samuel laments her infertility before the Lord. Job laments his loneliness and loss. Moses laments the sins of the nation of Israel. Tamar laments her abuse and rape at the hands of her brothers. Jesus laments with the language of Psalm 22 as he suffers on the cross for the sins of the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lament is one of the primary languages of the scriptures because pain is one of the primary experiences of the human soul. You hear that? So the Bible gives us space and our Father in heaven who knows us intimately and personally and yet is powerful enough to actually act invites us to embody this ancient language of lament. But it's worth asking before we do it, look forward to that. If it's such a pervasive part of the scriptures, it's a practice done by Jesus himself and one we're invited into. And I think if we're honest, there's even a part of our souls that crave it like we long for this expression of our pain, then why don't we more often lament? Why is this not a more regular practice of our souls? And I think there's a whole host of reasons. So sometimes we don't lament for God's kingdom because we're too focused on our own personal kingdoms, right? We're never going to pray, God, your kingdom come, because we're too focused saying, Tim, your kingdom come. Let my kingdom come into the world. Sometimes we don't lament because we don't believe God cares about our pain or the pain of the world. We think he's much too busy with our little meaningless lives, we think. We don't lament because we don't think God can handle our honesty. We think we have to like button ourselves up with all of our Christian lingo as we enter into God. Oh, holy God. Like you never say, oh, in your life. What are you talking about? We think God can't handle my honesty. He can't handle my pain. He can't handle what I'm actually going through. And listen, those are all valid. Those are all worth exploring at another time. But but I think for us as a church family, there's two primary reasons that are worth talking a little more about of why we don't lament as the Bible invites us to lament. Two primary ones I see as the pastor, one of the pastors of this church. The first is that we run from pain. We run from pain. First reason I think 
some of us don't lament is that we run from pain. We live, I talk about this all the time, we live in a society created to buffer us from the experience of pain, right? If you have pain from lacking something, well, Amazon Prime, you can get it in by the end of the day, right? Want to avoid thinking about painful things? I present to you an abundance of streaming services and more social medias than you can ever know what to do with. Is your body painful? Medicines, vitamins, essential oil, if you like to go more that route. Not a value statement. And not all of that is bad, right? I have Amazon Prime, took medicine this morning, right? Praise God for medicine when allergies in Charlotte are a thing every spring. Thank you. But it's worth noting that what happens is our culture develops us into people that think either pain should be avoided or solved in four quick, easy steps. Neil Postman, he was a, an award-winning author and cultural critic. He died a couple decades ago. He wrote a book in the 1980s. It's an incredible book. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's such a great book. I mean, you get the whole book in the title. You don't have to read it. But the whole book is basically one big argument that Western society, which is what we live in in America, trains us to fill our lives with trivial possessions and experiences in an attempt to distract us from fears and pains of life. I was thinking about this. Um, we think often about world religions, and there's often talked about like, all religions are the same, which is just not very not true. But what happens is people are like, it's all like we're climbing one mountain to God. And I was reading this week, one cultural critic said, actually, the experience of religion is much more opposite. We actually all don't start at different places moving towards one God. We actually all start at the same place, the universal experience of pain, and are looking for what to do with that. Now, the Christian reality answers it with the truth, which is God, right? God is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But we all start at this place of pain. What do I do with my pain? And the invitation of the Western secular West is run. Run. Amuse yourself to death. Get as far away from it as possible. Take some medicine. Distract yourself. Don't think about it. Move on. Busy yourself until it goes away. Maybe it's not busyness. Maybe we work hard to run from grief by spiritualizing our grief avoidance can wrongly believe that to lament or to grieve the brokenness of our lives is faithless rather than actually faithful. We think that if we can let ourselves hurt over what we long for, if we let ourselves grieve over what we don't have or what is missing or painful, then it means, okay, if I grieve this thing I don't have, then it means I'm not content in the Lord. That's actually not a biblical invitation. Biblical invitation from Hannah in 1 Samuel 4 is grieve what you do not have. Grieve where the kingdom of God is not broken in. Grieve where flourishing is not being experienced. Present it to the Lord. Why? Because the gift is communion. And the goal is communion. And he invites us to bring these griefs before him. I love St. Augustine for this. He says, it is better that the human heart feel grief and be cured of it than by not feeling any grief and becoming inhuman. You let yourself for very long, run from grief. You'll wake up one day realizing, I, say it this way, you will wake up one day realizing that you did not live into the full invitation of Christ on behalf and in our emotions to draw us into life with God. Does that make sense? You'll find yourself being less emotional than Jesus himself was, who cried and who grieved, and who lamented, who was in the garden, still trusting the Lord, still saying, your will, not mine, and yet saying, Lord, if there's any other way, let the cup pass. That's the invitation of the scriptures. That's one, right? We run from our pain, we over-spiritualize it, we ignore it, but I think the second one is maybe a little more tricky, but all the more prominent in our church family, and that is that we grieve just not to God. We grieve just not to God. 
For others of us, we have almost the opposite problem of those of us who run from our pain. We have no issue focusing almost all of our attention on what's bad in our life. Everything seems to always be bad. We cry, we grieve, we sit in our sadness. We just never actually lament by taking it to our Heavenly Father who can do something with it and can do something with us even in the midst of it. And so here's what happens. Instead of lamenting, we settle for its secular substitute called complaining. They feel very similar. They sound very similar. But here's the difference. Complaining is an airing of grievances and venting out into the world or to others. Lament takes it a step farther and becomes a faith-filled posture of bearing our burdens before the Lord. You want to know if you're lamenting versus complaining is do you actually end up at some point taking those complaints to God? Actually bringing your heart before him in faith. Not in some extra spiritual, like now I've got it all figured out way, but in a way that turns your soul to the presence of God with you in the pain. And addressing uh, the difference between biblical lament and just crying. I think this is really helpful. This is Mark Vergop again. He's got a really good book on lament. That's why uh, I'm quoting him. Uh, he says, lament is different from crying because lament is a form of prayer. It is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain. And it has a unique purpose, trust. It is a divinely gift invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. Lament is the prayer language for God's people as they live in a world marred by sin. It is how we talk to God about our sorrows as we renew our hope in his sovereign care. Here's the key line. To cry is human but to lament is Christian. To cry is human. Pain is a part of the human experience, but to lament is uniquely Christian. We consider the words of Christine Hoover. She says, without lament, we feel and emote without also inviting truth to reign in our hearts and our hope to rest in God. Lament requires us to bring our hearts to God. We have to actually look at our grief and then take the extra step of bringing our grief Godward. Because remember the goal of prayer. What is the baseline goal of prayer? Communion with God. And that's why pain can be a gift if we're willing to lament. Because lament turns us into our pain and then through our pain to God. And the gift is communion with him. The gift is his presence. The gift is not, we talked about this all last summer in our Emotionally Healthy Church series, right? The gift is not to be free of quote-unquote bad feelings. The gift is that through the feelings we might experience deeper communion with God. I struggle uh, with what some might say, emotional vulnerability. My wife's been working on me about this for the last nine years of our marriage. It's a struggle, right? I just don't like to open up. I don't like to be honest about what I'm going through. I just kind of want to internally process it and then move on. I'm in the run from grief category. And one of the consistent invitations from Jesus through her to me is, Tim, if you don't share your pain with me until it is solved or resolved, then you actually miss an opportunity for us to grow in intimacy together. And that is the invitation of God for us as his people. Do you, do you hear that? That he would actually say, hey, if you're not willing to be a person of lament, you're actually missing the gift of pain in your life to commune with me deeper. Because that's the point. That's the goal. And so we're trained in our Western society. We are trained by secularism to live a life free of pain. And yet the reality of sin, this side of the fall and this side of eternity, is that pain is a reality. And so we have to heed the invitation of Jesus, teaching us to pray, God, your kingdom come. This is broken. 
and it's not how it should be, and it's messed up. That person hurt me. That person betrayed me. I'm feeling the weight of this loss. I'm feeling the weight of this grief. My body is suffering. My heart is suffering, and I'm laying that before the Lord because I know that through that, I find communion with him. That's the invitation. That is the beautiful invitation of the Lord's Prayer. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to step into this together. We're going to actually lament together. We're going to let us be a people. We're going to invite us to be a people of, of actually practicing prayer. And so in your bulletin, if you've got a Bible, if you need it there um, in the seat backs, go to Psalm 13 with me. Psalm 13. We're going to actually practice lament together before we sing and worship. I just want to guide us through as we have been through this practice of lament, just taking a minute to just stare down our grief and pain. And if, hey, if you don't want to do it, that's totally fine. You're, it's an invitation, not a, not a coercion. You do you. But for those who want to, we're going to stare it down together. And we're going to step into it together because the Lord is present to us, right? Augustine, he's more present to us than we are to ourselves. Let's just live into that reality when it comes to our pain. So Psalm 13, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to pray for us and then I'll, I'll just kind of get us into it together. Austin's going to come up just to create some space for distraction-free zone. Let me, let me pray. And then I'm just going to walk us through these steps of lament. Lord, we come before you in pain. And though we might be tempted to run from it, to distract ourselves from it, to maybe think it's more healed than it is, to, to want to run from the burdens of our soul or to want to grieve in all of the wrong ways. Lord, we, we turn now and we repent of that and we want to lament to you as one who is present with us. So I want to start before we get to Psalm 13. Just ask the Lord, Lord, what do I need to grieve? Lord, what is the pain that I'm running from? Instead of running from it, let's turn and look at it. So take a minute, ask the Lord, what is the pain? What is the grief? What do I need to lament? Get it tangible, get it specific. step for lament is from Psalm 13, 1. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So step one is we just invite God to be near us in our pain. We turn to God, we face him in the midst of our grief, and we say, Lord, I need you in this with me. Do not forget me forever. So take a minute and just invite God to be present with you in your grief.
verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Step two of lament from verse two is to just describe our pain to God. As Ronald Rollhauser says it, holy complaint. Godward complaint. Lord, I'm mad about this. I'm angry about this. I'm grieving this. Just describe your pain to him as one who can hear and take all of it. temptation to Christianize it, to clean it up. He can handle it. Besides, he knows your heart. I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So step three in lament is to depend on God. We don't run to despair, which says there's no hope, and we don't run to denial, which says everything's fine. We run to dependency. We depend on the Lord. Lord, you have to answer me, or lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lord, you have to do it. And so we just tell him, Lord, you have to do it. We just depend on him and we submit our trust to him. Take a minute and do that.
verse five. It says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love and so my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We take a moment to dwell on God's character and his faithfulness. We just remember his goodness. We go back to, to the second invitation of prayer. We hallow his name. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our pain, we returning once again to adoring God, to remembering his faithfulness and who he is. step two and complain some more. Describe your pain to him some more. Walk the steps again. That's okay. It's an invitation. Not a rush. of the gathering and then some lamenting, that's fine. You gotta be out of here at 12, but until then. This is what he says. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So notice, here he is walking through the pain of lament, walking through the suffering, walking through the grief, and then he ends it with going, I have nothing to trust in but God. And then he says, because God has dealt bountifully with me, I will sing. So one translation says it because he's good to me or another because he has looked after me or another because he has treated me generously in the midst of my grief I will sing so I'm going to pray for us and the band's going to come up and lead us into a time of singing if you need to keep lamenting we've got the whole room you can spread out lament 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 complain if you spend the rest of the time complaining that's faithful that's the invitation for you we've got communion stations open for followers of Jesus on the sides of the stage and when you're ready sing to the Lord remembering his goodness for he has dealt bountifully with us amen let me pray for us Lord you are good as we sang even this morning your promises are sure and you're a strong tower for those who run to you for refuge just run to you and we're strong. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. So we run to you in our sin, we run to you in our grief, we run to you in our pain, our physical pain, our emotional pain, our relational pain, our spiritual pain, and we bring it to you. 
we don't we don't have the ribbon. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to put it in words that we think we have to do to get you to accept it. We just say it to you and you welcome us as our Father. God, in your patience, you know that it's going to take the rest of our lives to learn how far that invitation goes. God, we'll learn it until the day where we will have no limit. And we know that day's coming. We know Christ will return. We know it's a guaranteed promise, but we don't just want to wait for that day. We want to now pray, Lord, your kingdom come now. I want it now. And that's not selfish, Lord. You, you invite us to pray that. That's godly. That's of Christ. That's of you. So we say where our lives are off. We say where it's broken. We say the pain. We complain. We acknowledge. We bring it before you. And then we trust you. Imperfectly. Doubting. We say in the midst of our grief, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You meet us where we are.